Hello? Can you still hear me? Hi, everyone. This is MC Owens. If you'd like to support the Lotus Underground and these Dharma transmissions, please consider becoming a Patreon member. You can go to patreon.com backslash mcowens or follow the links at lotusunderground.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the... This is another MC Owens transmission. Hello? Okay. Uh, so, this is the fourth uh, and final part of the series on the four formless realms. Yay! Yay! Um, like I did every night, I'm going to sort of go over the whole process to bring us back up to where we are to talk about our final stage here. So, actually, what we've been talking about this uh, month. We've just been talking about these about these four um, formless realms. These are kind of deep meditative states that I'll talk in depth about tonight. But we've actually been talking about eight an eight step process. Um, and if you're not familiar with Buddhism or Buddhist meditation, this is standard Buddhism. Pretty much all forms of Buddhism agree that this is how it goes that there is this process for calming the mind down to a, a state of complete stillness, a, a state of complete uh, uh, stillness, quiet, peace, all of that. Um, and this process is called dhyana or jhana. Some people say jhana, some people say dhyana. And because we only have a little bit of time and I want to take, talk mainly about this eighth stage that we've finally gotten to, I'm going to kind of quickly go through this dhyana, these four dhyana stages and then these three formless realms that we've already covered. And all of this is dhyana. And so if you're not familiar with this term or this idea, you were just doing it. But the idea is, is that we have a lot on our mind. <laughs> A lot of ideas, a lot of chit-chat, a lot of chatter. And that chit-chat and that chatter is being caused by memories and ideas and emotions, yes. But it's also being caused by uh, sensual sense stimuli. Things you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and then ultimately that memory or thought and emotion one, the thinking. So the idea is like the, this thing's firing off. And it's firing off about all kinds of things, right? And ultimately, the, the idea, the Dharma, the, the teaching, is that, that all of that activity is actually causing us stress, anxiety. And whether it's a past mind that's full of regret or whatever about the past, or a future mind that's all full of hopes and dreams and desires and expectations, or even a present mind that's like, I can't wait for this guy to set up because I gotta go get something to eat. Like whatever the thoughts might be, the idea is, is that we're, we're full of them. It's causing us anxiety. And so the practice of dhyana is this simple, very, very simple activity of moving one's attention to an object. We were focusing on our breath because that's kind of the easiest because it's always where you are. But there's a, lot, a number of things. And I've been throwing around different things all month. There's a candle flame. Images of the Buddha, sort of candle flame, image of the Buddha, 
Um, you could do a various these discs of various colors. Um, the, uh, again, the breath. If, in many ways, if you're especially if you're a beginner, it doesn't matter. It could be a piece of lint. The point is, though, is that whether it's a piece of lint or a candle flame, we are bringing our attention onto that object and trying to first maintain awareness of that object, not having our attention drift over here or drift over there, but just to be focused on that breath, candle, or what have you. So the first movement of dhyana is the ability just to train the mind to stay somewhere. And, and for, for a lot of people, just that's tricky. You know, just that the wandering mind or when the moped goes by and it's like, your mind goes, right? So just the, the sticking to it is sort of tricky enough. So that's sort of the first step of dhyana is just sticking to it. But the real practice of dhyana is when the sense stimuli that are coming from other areas, so the moped, the sound of the moped, so things coming into the ears, if some you know, funky scent were to waft through to distract you out of your meditation, what we want to do is eventually kind of let go of other stimuli so that we are only consciously aware of this object. And in a sense, those other noises are just passing right through us as if we never heard them because we're so focused on this object. And this concentration or focused awareness of an object brings about this state of dhyana, which in older translations, dhyana was called absorption or meditative absorption. But the basic idea of dhyana is that you are so focused on that object that you do become kind of unaware of anything but that. And in a sense, when one is only aware of the object and there's kind of no awareness or no, no stimulation from anything else but that object, that's kind of a dhyanic state. And there's understood to be four levels or stages of, the, of dhyana. This, the first dhyanic stage is said to be quite joyful because one is um, having a sensation of not being necessarily in the body or at least not trapped by the body. So some people experience this as actual sort of outer body kind of experience. And I'm not trying to get weird like astral projection, but just a sense of not being housed in the body for a moment, that the consciousness is not between the ears and behind the eyes. Or if the feeling isn't so much that consciousness is outside of the body, the feeling is not being encumbered by the body. And I have often said that a sign of a good dhyana is that you don't want to leave. <laughs> Meaning that if you're in the meditative state and I ring the bell and you're like, darn, then you were in dhyana. <laughs> if you're like, thank God, oh, <laughs> then you were not in dhyana. If, if it's like that, right? So this first dhyana is this joyful state, somewhat disembodied, very pleasant, and it's marked by what's called a discursive mind. The mind is very aware that this has happened, that there's been a shift. The second dhyanic phase is said to be less joyful or rapturous, just slightly more, just content. And again, a discursive mind that is aware of that contentment. The third geonic state is said to be a little different in that that discursive mind ceases 
There's no longer this chattery mind that's like, oh my gosh, I'm not in my body anymore. Oh my gosh, I feel so great. There is just the feeling of contentment, like just feeling it, but no discursive awareness about it. So that's the third geonic stage. And then finally, the fourth geonic stage, which is sort of a, um, a monumental occasion to reach that, that is called equanimity, upeksha. And this is sort of a, a state unto itself to try to achieve, a state of complete equilibrium that is described as being between pleasure and pain, beauty, ugly, any, any you know, duality in that sense is gone. Um, and in a way, the fourth jhana begins, to, it starts to get harder to describe because the object of one's attention and the being, that is the observer, those two are starting to get a little mixed up a little bit. Because the sense of self has kind of diminished in that way, where you're kind of just in a feeling now without a discursive mind, and that's being brought about by this awareness of the object, there's kind of starts to be a merger here. But what's going to be important for tonight's talk is to know or that there is this observer of an object. Again, whether it's the breath, a candle flame, or the Buddha, there is the meditator and there is the object. There is the person meditating on the object. And through that fixed awareness of the object, it can bring about these feelings or these states of being, but there is the object. Now, I'm going to have to add a little bit to this so that we can have the most fun tonight, <laughs> right? So... What's being played with here, and this, is, this will have to do with that we're about to move into the first formless realm, which is this realm of infinite space, which is going to give way to infinite consciousness, even crazier, infinite nothingness, where I left everybody last week, and where we're headed tonight is a state of mind called a state of neither perception nor non-perception. That's where we're going, a state of neither nor, neither perception nor non-perception. Now, what's key in that is this idea of perception, perceptive awareness, all right? That's actually what we're thinking about in this meditation, what we're kind of focused on. And what I mean by that is, is that perception in Buddhism is this word samya, okay? And... It's tricky, if, especially if you've never studied a lot of the deeper Dharma stuff. But, you know, Buddhism is a heavy psychology. It goes deep into the way the mind works. And so right from the beginning, Buddhism really separates out the cognitive process into a few different categories. The, the, the thing that we call thinking or being consciously aware of anything, that we kind of have one word or even just one idea of, like, oh, look, I'm thinking. The Buddhists from, for, for almost 3,000 years now have considered it to be much more complicated than that. I'm not going to add, I'm not going to do all the terms, but there's just two that you kind of need to be aware of. There's sort of vijnana, which is like a conscious awareness, but conscious of what? Right, conscious of what? Well, conscious of, oh, look, my bowl. Right, so here's my bowl. And tonight, I mean, I, like I said, everything I'm saying tonight can be applied to your breath, 
candle flame Buddha or this bowl. Okay, so I'm just going to use the bowl because it's here and I don't want to start a fire by getting involved in the candle there. So the idea of, of this is that these objects, these objects of, that we are engaged with in this world, right? The interesting thing from a Buddhist per, uh, perspective is that they are very interested, especially for the subject tonight, they're very interested in this idea of perception. So right now I'm consciously aware that I have a bowl in my hand, but how did I know that I had a bowl in my hand? How did, how did I come to that conclusion that there was a bowl in my hand? And that coming to the conclusion that there's a bowl in my hand is what Buddhists call a perception. So there's a perceptive awareness that then leads to a conscious awareness of, of like, oh, look, that sure is a shiny bowl. But how did I know it was a bowl to begin with? Well, it has the characteristics or qualities of a bowl. It's hollow. It's round. That's what bowls are, right? If it were flat, right, it would be a symbol, ding, ding, and not a bowl anymore, right? So its characteristics, its shape, um, it's like, it's the, the usefulness of it, um, that is a quality that then tells me it's made of metal. I don't know about you, but my fancy brain, just here, I, what is it about that, that we know, oh, that's, that's not plastic, right? Because we know what plastic, I don't know how, but we know what plastic sounds like because it has the quality of that right? And we know what metal sounds like. It has the, that quality. So this perception that what I have in my hand is a round, hollow metal bowl, that's coming about through samya, through perception. And the way perception works is through these things, qualities or characteristics. Um, if you were to walk into a room and you, were t you needed a chair because you needed to sit down. How would you know what to get? Right? You would start looking around the room for something that had the qualities or the characteristics of a chair. Can I sit on it? Am I, it, it you know, will I fall down if I sit on that thing? But that's what a quality of a chair is, is that I can sit on it. It will support me. Right? So we have to be aware of this sort of psychology that of samya because we're headed to the realm of neither samya nor no samya so neither perception nor not perception all right and so i just want to i want everybody to know or that that's where this is headed so that when i start this dionic practice and i have the bowl and I decided that all of this stuff, all of the stimuli, all of these thoughts are causing me the anxiety. If I could just calm my mind down, I'd be a lot better off. So I'm going to move my attention to the one object and I'm going to use it as an anchor of my attention. And the, the, the magic of Buddhism actually is that this just takes time at this point. It just takes time. Meaning the longer that you can hold it, the better. And it just takes time. There's no magic moment. It's actually the, the, the image that always comes to my mind is 
in Buddhism, they talk about a, a, a disturbed body of water, like a glass of water that's all been disturbed. The best way to get that water to come to a still place is to let it be. You don't stir it the other way. You don't shake it trying to get it to be still. You actually just let it be still. The same thing is true of the mind. The mind is agitated. They describe it as a, a, a pool of water in which ideas are like stones or rocks being thrown, creating ripples in our mind. And it's just like all these ripples, all these waves. And if we would stop throwing the stones into the mind, the mind would eventually calm down to a still pool of water, perfectly reflective of the world. That's upaksha. That's what we're kind of going for is that stillness. So we place our attention on an object, and we try to shut out everything out. We try to use this as an object to get into that first dhyana, second dhyana, third dhyana, and then finally that fourth dhyana. And something sort of magical can happen in that fourth jhana, which is this. When I'm meditating on the bowl, when I start this process, of course, I just told you. What, what is a bowl? A bowl is a pile of qualities or characteristics. <laughs> It is a pile of them. And you can imagine um, you can imagine these qualities or characteristics as being like, a, a, let's do like a veils, right? These beautiful little like um, little silk veils, right? And so I have this one veil that is round and I have another one that's hollow and I have another one that's metal and I have another one like this and... And what this is, is a pile of veils, a pile of qualities or characteristics in the mind. That's what all things are. All things are little piles of qualities or characteristics. Look, I call that a chair, but what is a chair? Look, it has a back, four legs, a place for me to sit down. So what a chair is, is the qualities or characteristics of a chair. What a bowl is, is called the qualities or characteristics of that. Now... What happens in this dhyanic state is that I am left, again, just with this object and just with this object that I am sort of um, imagining or understanding that has these qualities or characteristics. And there is one, I don't want to call it a thing because it's not a thing. But there's one aspect to this world, one you could kind of call it a quality or a characteristic, but there's one thing about this world in which all things share and participate in it, and it's this really mystical quality called space, akasha. And this is our first formless realm. And what this space is, is that it's this sort of, um, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like this space, and what's helpful about the bowl in this case is that a very important quality of this being a bowl, a very important quality of it is this space, right? Because again, if it didn't have this space, if it were like that and I was like trying to put my cereal in there, it, it, there's no space. So my cereal is going to spill out and it's not going to be a very good bowl. Right? It won't really be doing that bullness. 
oh, but I, I have the space back, right? So bowls are interesting because space is such an essential part of its being. And so it's kind of helpful. But actually this space, which is just space, it's space. It's not outer space. It's not um, space in Buddhism, this Akasha thing. It is not a thing. It's not tangible. Like It's not transmutable. I can't pour the space out onto the table. It's not how space works. Space is, is in a way, created by form. I mean, oh, look. Look at that space. I just, oh, I made more space. How much space is there? Well, the idea of this mysterious quality akasha or space the interesting thing about it is that it is truly infinite it just goes on and on and on and on and so without getting into too much detail about how this happens if one maintains one's awareness on the an object any object long enough those qualities or characteristics will again i can't get into how or when this happens but fade away and one will be left with just the space, the quality of space that constitutes all things. All right. And what I've been suggesting this whole month is that there is this dhyana, this, this uh, focused awareness or attention on an object. And we've decided to do the bowl. And this bowl is moving us through these four dhyanic stages. And then this bowl... And I'm going to just use this hand as an, this is my attention, my awareness, that instead of the millions of things, I'm going to bring it and put it on the bowl. First jhana, second, third, fourth jhana, the consciousness being aware of the bowl, this bowl gives way to space, this infinite space, the, again, that underlies all, all phenomena. So the mind in the first formless realm is the consciousness focusing or attending to space and it's the space of that object but it's an infinite space so it's vast open space that i'm aware of so this is a very heavy deep meditation when one's awareness is on the quality kind of of space right this is deep and again we've we've gone past upeksha Past equanimity, meaning that the, the noises outside, those are far gone at this point. Because one is only in this realm of infinite space. Can we also say that the ego is also gone, right? Hold on to that idea or concept, because I'm going to, it's kind of the point of tonight. Yes, though, the idea is, this is why I kind of said this earlier, the idea is, is that there's me, the meditator, and my bull, and then the bull gives way to space, akasha, or infinite space, and there is the meditator, me the meditator's consciousness on infinite space as, a, as, a, as an ayatana. These are actually these four things we're talking about, these four formless realms. These are actually called ayatanas, and the word ayatana means a foundation or a base. So these are these four subtle formless bases of meditation, ayatanas, and the first ayatana is just space. But if one stays there long enough and meditates and focuses on this idea of space long enough, eventually that space 
goes away in a sense, and one is left with just consciousness, vast, infinite consciousness, not aware of anything, kind of aware of itself, sort of. But the idea is, is that if you back up to the bowl, my consciousness was aware of this bowl via its qualities or characteristics. I didn't think I had a cat in my hand because a cat has all kinds of other qualities and characteristics. It's moving around, it's furry, it's loud. This is not loud, it's not furry, it's not moving all around. So my consciousness is aware of this as a bowl because of those various qualities or characteristics. One of which is space, even though at a very deep level, I'm often not aware of that. But in this meditation, I am. And so all of the qualities and characteristics of this specific bowl give way to this space. And my consciousness is just on the space. Then you take even the space away and you are just having that cognitive awareness that would usually be aware of qualities and characteristics but I, I don't have any qualities and characteristics for it to be entertained by, for it to be cognitive of. So it is sort of <coughs> cognitively aware of the quality of consciousness, the characteristic of conscious awareness, kind of. And that's the second formless realm, infinite consciousness, infinite vijnana. And so if you followed my movement from the bowl, my consciousness on the bowl, bowl gives way to space, Space gives way to just consciousness. The third formless realm is when you take away even the consciousness. And so what, behold, what do I have before me? That's right. Nothing. There is nothing to describe. Nothing to describe. No lakshana. No qualities or characteristics. And no conscious aware of them. Total nothingness, no thingness, akimkanya. It's called akimkanya ayatana, the base or the foundation of absolute nothingness. No qualities or characteristics for the mind to be aware of, actually, not even a conscious mind being aware. And last week, when we talked about this state of no thingness, this akimkanya ayatana, I suggested that if one wanted to meditate on the sphere or realm of no-thingness, it would be helpful to think about a stage in which you've been blacked out or that point in between being awake and dreaming when you're just not conscious of anything. So again, either you blacked out. Remember last time you blacked out? No, you don't because you weren't conscious. So take that experience of not being aware of anything, as subtly weird as that is, that is the focus of one's meditation in this third formless realm. This weird state of not being at all. That's where we left it last week. Any questions left over from the state of no-thingness? Sorry. Yeah? If you're letting all your senses rest, is that, I mean, what you didn't, haven't mentioned or haven't really 
said a lot about is the sensory system. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I'm alluding to it by the fact that there's nothing and our perception is a lot of what our body is observing mm-hmm. through our senses. So it makes sense that our sensory system would be at rest. And therefore, that place between awake and asleep is and you're not dreaming. Mm-hmm. It's very restful Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. So again, go back to how I started this talk, which was that there's this kind of equation in Buddhism, which is that the more things on my mind, the more kind of anxiety. And there's this uh, divine equation, which is the less on my mind, the less stress and anxiety. Tit for tat. So that if you get it down to just the one object, and with very few qualities or characteristics to be entertained by, the mind can come to a very still place and kind of breathe easy for once. That's the idea. Rest, absolutely. But if you follow this idea of this divine equation, oh, well, then that bowl, you know, it has all, you know, it's, it's round, it's hollow, it's metal, all these things. So we want to get the stimuli down to just space. Which, in a way, if you kind of think philosophically for a moment, kind of just has one quality. Kind of this quality of allowance, or this quality of spaciousness. (laughs) But then that is still a quality or characteristic that then is let go of with just this consciousness being aware, again, kind of of itself, but it's actually kind of aware of the conscious activity. That then gives away to nothingness. And then what they say is, is that in the third stage, even nothingness is a concept, is an idea. I, I had to resort to some analogy in order for you to say, oh, I know what you're talking about with nothingness. That's, it's on an ice cream cone, <laughs> right? But that means it's something because it ain't an ice cream cone. It's nothingness. So it's still something even though it's nothing. And that's where we kind of push through this nothingness to this state of neither perception or non-perception that we're going to talk about tonight. But very quickly, though, just on this point of the, the stillness, tonight or in any of your meditations, I hope you, everyone has had that experience of noticing the way in which if you're in a nice meditative state and you're meditating on your breathing do you notice, or, you know, or maybe it's just me, but I have a feeling it's not just me. Do you notice when the loud car goes by, how it disturbs your meditation? Right? It, it, you notice it. And, speaking about qualities and characteristics, isn't it weird that we know the difference between, you know, a, 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 a gasoline burning engine? We know a moped when we hear it, that little... <laughs> And the way it sounds. So it's really weird that based on qualities or characteristics, we know that was like a moped or a motorcycle. or We kind of have a sense of what that was based on its qualities or characteristics. And I just want to kind of again say, like, do you notice how the intrusion of other qualities and characteristics disturb the mind, stimulate the mind? Now, something I've never... Um, said is that in the classical yoga system you would do there's a posture and I think it's like you use your index fingers and to shut your eyes like literally hold them shut but also covering them so you don't get light 
these two color your nostrils, uh, lips, and then finally you fold your ears back with your thumbs. This is like an old school practice of literally blocking or guarding the sense doors. So in, in Buddhism, they describe guarding the sense doors. I've never seen this practice in Buddhism, though, because in Buddhism, they seem to mean guard the sense doors like be on the watch. Notice how the moped affects your hearing. But there's a tradition where you literally close them off. And, and a, um, a term I don't think I've ever used, which I should, is sensory deprivation. It's what they're talking about. The sensory deprivation tank it would, is a great, like, is like great training wheels for this type of activity because the idea is that in some ways Buddhism kind of expects a lot of the meditator. In other words, like the, the Buddhist would go to like Times Square and squat down and try to do this type of meditation, like in the middle of Times Square where it's you know, kind of impossible. So many qualities and characteristics and lakshana coming at you from every place, right? So there is a way in which coming into a nice quiet zendo, right, is nice and like doing the best to create a, a sensory deprivation environment is helpful. And I guess I just kind of piggybacking off your question, we're talking about sensory deprivation. Like, yeah, trying to get so that when the moped goes by, it doesn't bother us. And so, again, one way to do that would be to actually plug the ears up. But Buddhism is this kind of high-tech meditation where it actually is training you to do that um, while, while awake. And um, a good example of that uh, that I've shared a few times is that there's an there's a interesting book, if you're into it, uh, that this type of stuff... Uh, it's, it's called Zen in the Brain, big old book, and it's kind of about neurology and cognitive science and meditation and how they match up. In that big old book, there's an amazing, um, he, he details a study that was done on meditation, and I think it's really helpful to understand this aspect of, of Buddhist meditation. The study involved a classical yoga samadhi specialist, so this person that was an expert in these really deep meditative states called samadhis. There was a Zen monk, and then there was like your control subject, your average dude. And these three uh, individuals were put into this controlled environment. The average dude was just told to like read a magazine or whatever, the two monks, the Zen monk and the, the, the Samadhi, the yogi, both went into deep meditative states. And what the study kind of showed, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it all for simplicity's sake, but the study was is that they, in, these guys meditating in this room, the researchers introduced a loud clamor into the room. And, oh, and by the way, these guys meditating, they're all hooked up to the EKG machines, heart rate, body temperature, the whole thing. And what the study showed was that the, so your average Joe, when the loud clamor happened, his, his uh, brain activity goes, and then for the next couple of minutes is like, <laughs> the yogi, his EKG goes like this. It's like he never even heard the noise. The Zen monk, his goes like this. He heard it, and then he's right back into the meditative state that he was in. 
And that it's such a nice study because it speaks to sort of a big difference between a lot of meditation practices, which are about going so deep, so far out that in, in some instances, like people can come up and hit, start hitting you with a bat and you're gone. You're so deep out. But the Buddhist one where the guy hears the noise, but he's not as affected by it, that's more of the Buddhist one, which is about being in the world, but not affected by the world. You know, the escapist yoga techniques of getting out of the body so that's not one's not suffering. That's that's a technique. All right. But the Buddhist practice of bringing those techniques back into this world are where one doesn't have to do the crazy thing where one trains oneself to just not be disturbed by the other noises and has done a certain amount of mind training to be able to say, you know, I'm going to look at this candle flame for the next hour and you're on it. And again, it's mind training because most of us either get bored or literally get distracted or whatever it is. Okay. So neither perception nor non-perception. So this is the state I've said this a few times that until the Buddha came around, some people thought the state of nothingness was the, the be all, the end all of meditation. That if you can make it to the realm of nothingness, you're good. Others think, thought, still do think that this state of neither perception or non-perception is what's called moksha or liberation. Buddhism doesn't. Actually, Buddhism believes that this place of neither perception nor non-perception is kind of like Hawaii. It's like a nice place to go to calm down, but you don't actually stay in Hawaii. You don't stay on vacation. You come back into the world sort of a thing. Um, So for simplicity's sake, the state of neither perception nor non-perception is usually defined as this non-dual state of being in which the subject and object have collided collapsed in some sense so whether it was the flame or the bowl or what have you there's this kind of merger happen but i kind of want to give you a a better a better description of it than than that right because neither nor neither perception nor non-perception it kind of says that it's non-dual or whatever you know and so just to say oh it's a non-dual state of being it doesn't like what does that mean so this will be another, uh, another way in which Buddhism is a unique meditation tradition. This, um, uh, the ego question that came up is what we're kind of getting at. So the first thing that I can say is, is that all, all of this so far has been based on the subject-object relationship. Me, the meditator... And my bowl, the object, subject, object. And then I'm in the first jhana. Woohoo! I'm in the second jhana. Yay. I'm in the third jhana. I'm in the fourth jhana. I'm having the experience, the, this, you know, I'm on the ayatana of infinite space. I'm in infinite consciousness. I'm in infinite nothingness. It's around this neither nor that things get a little weird. And what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, you might have seen like charts in yoga where it's like the gross body 
and then there's like the the spirit body or something and the bliss body and the knowledge body and there's kind of these concentric rings and they kind of speak to like a, maybe an aura or something like that if you see one of those charts though right away if you're a buddhist you're like oh it's it, it has a what i call a karmic axis which is this idea that this situation here this this thing called michael this thing this event called being michael that it's like the illusion that I have of myself is this karmic axis where everything flows out from this and then comes back to this. Meaning the only thing that I'm aware of is my hunger. I don't know anything. I don't know if you're hungry or not. I don't. But I know about this, right? I, so I'm, I'm aware of my action and I'm aware of anything coming back here. Um, you know, I know, I know, you know, somebody paid me a compliment earlier today. Whoop. That came right back here. So I got, I got that. I don't know if anybody paid you a compliment. So I'm not carrying that around. It's not my karma. So there's this thing. And this is, you know, this is sort of a, how we experience life and B how most yoga traditions are talking about it, which is that there's this karmic axis and, the practice is actually about, you know, various tunings of chakras of this axis, various psychological problems of this axis, but it's all centered on this here. And so the subject-object relationship is about this karmic axis and the perceptions that it's having about the objects that it thinks it's seeing, right? Well... The basic idea here is, is that that, I mean, there's so much wrapped up into this and I'm going to try to stay on track, but the idea is, is that sense, the sense that you may have that you are in here between the ears, behind the eyes, that this is where you are. Well, from a Buddhist point of view, be open to the possibility that that's just a persistent illusion. And what I mean by that is this, right? Is that I am a subject object. The bowl is in my hand, but it's not me. I'm looking at it, right? So this is the subject object relationship, right? Well, I want you just for a moment, because I'm probably going to probably draw on this illusion a few times. Think about a dream you've had recently or think about a dream you've had in the past that is just very memorable. The idea is, is that if you think about it really clearly, I don't want to say hard, but if you think about it very clearly, you will imagine that in a dream, you dream of objects right? And those objects are, aren't you, right? Like in the dream, you might be like, ooh, that's a nice looking bowl. I better go get it, right? Isn't that dream bowl your mind? Aren't you imagining that dream? And isn't that bowl part of your mind? Yeah? Everybody with me on this? That, that the bowl in your dream is, is your dream mind bowl, right? And yet, in a dream, 
it appears to be other than you, doesn't it? Even though it's you, it's your mind, it's your mindable, the subject-object relationship carries over into the dream where we hold on to that way of seeing the world where I'm somehow like the, again, like the viewer of a world of objects. And it's like, ooh, 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 right? So what I'm getting at with this neither perception nor non-perception. So this naiva samya, asamya ayatana. That's it. Naiva samya, asamya ayatana. So neither samya nor asamya. The base of neither perception nor non-perception. So I started this by saying that the Buddhists see this psychology as the mind, the vinyana, is aware of the objects that it's deduced via perception, via samya, right? And so in the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, right, that object, well, that object was other than me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was meditating on its qualities or characteristics. That's samya. Oh, look, round, hollow, metal. The idea of going through this deep meditation, and by the way, this going through the four dhyanas and the four formless samadhis, this is not just, you don't just do this like in a, a session or whatever. This is like a lifetime of practice to achieve these states, all right? But the idea is, is that in all of those dhyanas and samadhis, the subject is viewing the object and meditating on its qualities, eventually just its quality of space, eventually just this consciousness thing, no thingness, but there is still the observer thinking about no thingness. One pushes through that to the state of neither perception nor non-perception in which one gains access. It's not guaranteed, but one gains access to an insight about this complicated nature of self and other and reality and all of that. And what I mean is, is that when they say, oh, at this point of neither perception nor non-perception, it's, it's not nothingness where there was nothing, like zero. Neither perception nor non-perception is sort of this like return to the world of things, but not the deluded world of things that are not me, that are outside of me, that I could want, cling to, and grasp. But that would be samya. And then no samya would kind of be like the nothingness. So samya, no, no samya. And then this is the state of neither samya nor no samya. And what I'm suggesting is, is that if you go back to your dream state, even though, see, this is the thing about dreams, is that you can really meditate on them. Meaning that you, you know that that dream bowl was you, was your mind. And yet in the dream, you carried over this subject-object relationship. You, you, you decided that, like, a good way to put this, is in 
let me get it right. So dream bowl or real bowl, right? Um, I often talk about my, uh, so these qualities or characteristics, these are lakshana. There's a Sanskrit word, lakshana, quality or characteristic, round, hollow. So I like to talk about my lakshana paintbrush. So I have this paintbrush and it goes like round, hollow, metal, because those are all characters or characteristics or qualities of this thing, right? That, that's that's it, it, right? But there's an interesting brush stroke of the mind. There's an interesting brush stroke of, of a quality or a characteristic. And that brush stroke is not me. It's a brush stroke of the mind that says, you're not me. You, you have that characteristic too. You're round, you're hollow, you're metal, and you're not me. Anybody follow me on that? But what I want you to, to see is go back to the dream. You were doing it in your dream too, where you picked up a dream bowl and you went, wow, that's round, hollow, metal, and not me. But guess what? You were wrong about the last one. <laughs> Actually, you were wrong about them all, but you were really <laughs> wrong about the last one, right? Because you woke up you wake up and you're like, oh, I could have had that bowl any moment I wanted it. Because was, it was a dream, right? Imagine that you were having a dream where somebody was like teasing you. And you were like, oh, but I really want that bowl. And then you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, idiot. It was a dream. I could have had it the whole time. But I was painting it with the brushstroke of not me. So what I'm suggesting is, is that the, the insight, the vipassana of Buddhist wisdom or Buddhist meditation is this sort of insight about the nature of reality as being rather dreamlike in insofar as the mind's running around painting the world with these qualities. And so when one reaches the state of neither perception nor non-perception, there's sort of an insight into that. And then this return to the world of things. And now the mind is not projecting or brush stroking onto that thing round hollow metal other than me the state of neither perception or non-perception knows this is is me and that becomes the meditation so one is returning to the world of things but not not a world of two things or three things four things or five or a million things it's to a world of Lakshanic painting. What was that gesture? That's beautiful. <laughs> it's the one with everything. That you yes, you had it. That's why I thought you were gesturing. Exactly. So that I also speak of that dream-like reality. So if you think of a dream again, oh wow, look at all the the stuff in your dream, right? There's a way in which a dream is. Um, what I call uh, uh, monolithic. It's sort of all one, kind of, right? That, I mean, or, or put it this way, before we go crazy with that, what's really interesting about the dream, meditating on the dream state, is that here goes another one. Here goes some more lakshana, or qualities, right? The roundness is what I'm seeing. 
that I hear. So that quality is with my ear and the round quality is with my eye. Everybody follow me on this? If I go into a dream and I go and I'm hearing it and I'm seeing it, but my eyes are closed and I'm not using my ears to hear it, right? I'm in a dream, right? So there's a way in which a dream is interestingly like a monolithic consciousness, right? That the mind with its little Lakshana paintbrush goes, you're something to see and you're something to hear. But what's interesting is that from a dream perspective, sound and sight are, they're the same. Do you you know what I mean by the same? Like, because they're both kind of these conscious experiences. Well, if you want a little like, like sneak preview into Buddhism, the idea here is, is that it apply everything I just said tonight about that dream world to this world, which is that the subject object relationship that you're having with this might just be a brushstroke of the mind. It may not actually be that the bowl is other than me. And just that it, just because it appears to be other than me, there's hardly any proof at all, right? Because again, go back to the dream state where you, somebody in your dream is like, dude, you, don't you know this is not you, right? It's like, oh, okay, so just because it looks and feels like it's not me, that's no proof that it isn't me, right? And... You think you're hearing me with your ears and seeing me with your eyes. But it may, it may be that this is a monolithic conscious experience that you are chopping up with your brushstroke, Lakshana <laughs> brushstroke mind, and saying, no, 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 no. I'm hearing you with my ears, but I'm seeing you with my eyes. Now, what's important, what's wisdom to understand about from a Buddhist point of view, is, is that insofar as you think it's real, it is real. Meaning insofar as you think you're hearing me with your ears, then you are hearing me with your ears. And if you start to have a problem with that, you'll have to go see an ear doctor and get it taken care of. Yes, because <laughs> you believe that. And what I mean by that is, is like, again, go back to the dream. Imagine you get lost in a very deep, deep dream and you start having problems hearing people in your dream can't you imagine going to a doctor in the dream because you're so convinced by the reality of that dream and you could go through the whole process he's looking in there prescribes you something in the dream you take it and your ears get better none of that is proof though that it's real it just means it's an experience you're having so there's this way that that buddhism sort of leads to this a place that's called um, kind of, it's usually labeled as consciousness only or mind only, but actually that's sort of a mistranslation. It's experience only. If you guys are familiar with Yogacara or mind only Buddhism, it's actually experience only, meaning that what your experience is, is real and there's no other reality than it. 
And actually what this means for like hallucinatory experiences is that when one is having the hallucination of like a giant pink elephant right here, there's a giant pink elephant right here. There's no not giant pink elephant right here. And as much as somebody that's not in the hallucinatory state could be like, dude, you're tripping. There's no elephant. No, you're tripping. And you're having a trip in which there's no elephant. And that's your experience. And that's your reality. And my reality is that there is a pink elephant. And that's right. (laughs) Meaning from the Buddhist point of view, There is no such thing as a God's eye perspective on life, the world, and reality that says what is really going on. There is just experience. And so it's actually vitally important that we take our experience very seriously in that way. Questions, ideas, comments? I can't quite tell if I heard you saying they they seem to be in the similar part of the roadmap, mm-hmm. but they felt a little bit different in terms of, and, and I'm not sure I got it, so mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to do. So if if I got it the way I thought you were saying it, mm-hmm. the, uh, the calming and the restfulness of senses, like you were talking about, the resting of the senses to this uh, expansion of the access, mm-hmm. uh, in the yogic traditions has a dissociative uh, or separating or uh, deprivation I'm going to say quality sorry, uh, no, yeah, quality yeah. Um, but the Buddhist idea really just goes into rest and resilience so even if you bump you back thank you so much because I actually didn't finish a thought that you need great <laughs> So I started it by saying, like, if you see any of these classical yoga diagrams, it's about the axis and everything coming out from the axis. So what I believe makes Buddhism rather radical and interesting in all of this is actually what I think it's pushing to is, and I was dancing around it all night, but I didn't say it explicitly, which is that this karmic axis is in a sense a choice meaning that this is clinging, that I only care about the karma that here, and I'm like, whatever happens to you tonight, good luck, buddy. It's not my problem, because I cling only to this axis. And what Buddhism is saying is, is that that experience of being embodied and only a, a feeling what happens here and only caring about what happens here, that's all a product of clinging, not physics, not anatomy, none of that. Clinging, and if I, I want to, I wanted to make a very clear statement about what clinging is. <laughs> I say this every night, and I feel like maybe I haven't been clear enough about this Buddhist idea because this is this is the problem, folks. And I want to tell you what it is. Clinging is yes, it can look like this, like actual holding too tightly to things. That it can look like that, but what's more helpful to think about in terms of clinging is. Uh, the sense of ownership. Because what I mean is, is that if I have a sense of ownership over this bowl, and I were to go out onto Folsom and put it down on the sidewalk and then come back in here, 
and I like I care about this thing. This is like my mom gave this to me, right? I'm going to be worried. I'm not going to do that, right? That's clinging. That's attachment. <laughs> Meaning that if I didn't care at all about this, which in a way I don't, and if I were to go out there and just put it on the sidewalk and come back in here, and I have no, it's like somebody could take it, somebody could take a piss in it. I don't care. I'm, I, I have no attachment to it. I'm free of it. It could decay. It could fall apart. Somebody could, quote, steal it. I'm fine. I have no, no attachment to it. That's what Buddhism is ta- talking about in terms of attachment is actually ownership, a sense of ownership. That's what clinging to this is, is a sense of ownership. It's why we feel wronged and, and like invading my space and all of these ideas is that we have this. And what I want you to kind of understand is that, again, it's not anatomy or biology. It's a choice or a decision to be so obsessed with this axis and to not care about Robert, not to care about Eric, not to care about everybody else's karma and their what to be like, no, no, I'm just going to worry about what happens to me, my little karmic axis. First of all, it's delusional because it's not actually how it works. All of our karmas affect all of our karmas. That's the, the truth of it. It's denial to just be like, oh, no, I'm just going to worry about me and mine. So the idea here is, is that if you could, and this is what Buddhism says we are capable of, achieving a state of non-ownership i.e. ego attachment to the axis, to this, it's not, I described it one night preliminarily as, yeah, this is your axis, but I could also identify with my sangha. So my axis is now as big as this building, so to speak, and what happens to this sangha affects me, and what this sangha does affects me. Or I can make the axis bigger, and it could be San Francisco, And now I'm a San Franciscan and what I do affects San Francisco and what San Francisco does affects me. And it could get, keep getting wider and wider state, country, whatever, whatever. But Buddhism is actually that hammer of the gods smashing the axis. So we don't have any attachment to any axis. That's the freedom. That's the liberation is to have that detached, non-owning, clinging attitude across the board. That's called liberation. I'm not, um, I'm not saying I'm there and I'm not even sort of saying you should be there. I think like a good Buddhist, I'm sort of saying, think about it. Like think about that, those relationships. Think about the relationship you have to either your stuff and then how is that going? <laughs> <laughs> think about relationship to your the you know the, yourself and how's that going and then again think about what i just said about ownership and clinging and attachment and then think about well what would that mean or look like if i did let go in that sense huh. just think about it and isn't it that sense of clinging and attachment that in some ways also creates the sense of other Absolutely, exactly. You can't have other without self. In one of the sutras that we were talking about, the Buddha says, it's dristi. I have no opinion. I have no view. No fixed view. No fixed view. No fixed view. It's all right for people to have fixed views and have their perception because that's that's who they are. That's what they do. They believe in eternity. They believe in 
heaven, they believe whatever, that's fine. I have, there's no fixed view. Mm -hmm. And therefore he's liberated as this, or, but he's just explaining it. That's the only way he can explain it. So this word dristi, no fixed view, mm -hmm. even applies to this conversation. Indeed, absolutely. And in terms of the no fixed view, I would apply that to my pink elephant, which is that the enlightened person understands, ah, the drug I just took is causing me to see this pink elephant, but there's no other way for it to be than that. And so the fixed view, the solid fixed view would be like, no, there's an elephant here. Like, and then the non-fixed view is this awareness of the dependently originated nature of these things. Brenda, did you have one too? <laughs> I don't know. This shit's so far out. Um, <laughs> no, I was just thinking about the. Uh, I, I, I always. I, I've tried to ask you about it, and you give me some horseshit answers about free will sometimes. Um, and then, and then, and then uh, you've got like a scale. I know. And rocks I know. and trees and birds and things. But I, the, the, when you're in a dream, you have the dream, and then you wake up. You have a real sense of like, not only could I not have done anything other than what I did, but that like you were watching somebody do all that stuff. At least for me, I don't really feel like an agent in my dreams. Like when I'm in the dream, I do. Mm. And it's sort of analogous to like what's going on here. Like that's probably part of the illusion. Like is that it really seems like I'm making the decisions to do the things that I do. And I stress about that constantly. Mm -hmm. Not even just past, but like you know, near future. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the idea that, yeah, just like a dream, you wake up from it and realize, like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't an agent in the moment of any of those decisions. Yeah, and on that note, I just want to add, because if, if, if people haven't heard it, you know, um, a, a, the word Buddha means an awakened one. The word Bud means to awaken. Bud is where we get the English word bud, to like a flower awakens it buds and that budding that budding that awakening is why uh, buddhas are always on these flowers the metaphor being that there is a further awakening that can happen and though i wanted to just piggyback off, off what you just said because of this idea of like that that dis, that disposition or that that looking back when we when we wake up and we're like oh that was just a dream how could i have been so silly well the idea is, is that in the same way that we awaken and look back on the dream and be like, oh, how could I have been so foolish? Buddhism is about that there's a, a, a further awakening that human beings are capable of. That's not unlike awakening from a dream, but it's that there's like dream and then I wake up to quote reality, but actually reality is a little bit of like this weird collective dream and I could wake up even more and further and it would make this look like your agentless dream zone. But because we maybe have never been in that awakened state, this is as good as it gets or this is as real as it gets. Just like that dream that we haven't woken up from that seems as real as real. And like I often say, if you're having a nightmare and there's somebody chasing you down the halls and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I hope they don't get me. And then something happens in the dream and you're like, wait a minute, this is a dream. All of a sudden you realize, oh, that was me. I was chasing myself down the hall. And the important thing about, and this would be like a lucid dream where you become aware that you're dreaming, right? The most important thing about meditating 
on the idea of a lucid dream is that as soon as you become lucid, it's not like things like turn in, like poof, poof, little puffs of smoke and they disappear. Everything stays exactly the way it was, but your relationship to it is totally different, right? You're like, oh, I have no reason to get so scared. I have no reason to get so upset. This is just a dream. Well, Buddha's saying the same thing about this. You're chasing yourself down the hallway. All your fears, everything you fear is your mind. Things you cling to, want, desire, da-da-da, chasing you down the hallways of life. And the minute you wake up to this being like a dream, poof, your disposition towards it totally changes. Awakening. So, one last question. What was that book? Zen in the Mind? Zen in the Brain. Zen in the Brain. Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N is the guy's last name. I'm a material reductionist. This hat. And that is to say, hey, if I eat too much chocolate, I act like this. If I take psilocybin mushrooms, I'm like that. Yeah. Uh, are the people who are in deep samadhi, are their brain waves like in gamma or in deep theta? Or, I mean, what, you know, is it, if, if, yeah. if everything is taking place in my brain, I mean, it, for giggles, um, Zen in the brain. They put electrodes and say, like, "Well, that guy's in samadhi. His his waves are doing this." Yeah. Only on that note, I would just want to end this by going back to my pink elephant example and this idea that the scientist that's outside of the meditator who's looking at the EKG—that's his reality. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And the person that's actually in it—that's his. That person's reality. And they may appear to be talking about the same reality, but I, again, this is where it goes to experience only in that way. And, and if the meditator believes in the EKG and all of that, then that's what's happening. And it's about theta waves and gamma waves and all of that. But if you really understood what I was saying tonight, all of that is just one view or one angle to take. Meaning the whole scientific worldview and particles and all of that is just one reality and it's sort of a dominant one that we're all in so it seems really real and it'll keep seeming real as long as that's the case but yeah but the the liberation or the liberatory aspect of all of this of all of this is that our minds are actually much more in control of all of this than we think vis-a-vis via that lakshanic paintbrush we're the ones that are doing all of this, painting this, look, a bunch of other people, da 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 and then putting the paintbrushes away and being like, all right, world, let's do this. But we've created that world, and we could get out a whole new set of paintbrushes. And so, on that lovely note, I'm going to call it a night, and that's the end of the series. Thank you. Thank you all so much.